3: Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The The Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Dr. Colleen Oren. Dr. Oren is an associate professor at William Patterson University and the author of Bernie Madoff and the Crisis. Let's hear what she has to say about Bernie Madoff and the Ponzi scheme he created. Hi, Colleen. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, Rebecca. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So can we start off by having you give us a little background on Bernie Madoff and his upbringing?
1: Bernie Madoff had a rather unremarkable upbringing. He grew up in Queens uh, to a middle class family. He was a very popular uh, teenager, made Made money um, uh, lifeguarding, was popular with the girls, went to Hofstra University. Um, where he graduated with a degree in social sciences, he would later call it the other H University because he was embarrassed that he had not attended Harvard when all of his banking buddies uh, had a, a, a you know went to prestigious Ivy League colleges. He did attend law school, but he dropped out. He would later kind of misrepresent that he had graduated from law school so maybe maybe foreshadowing of, of things to come. Um, but, you know, he, he entered into then business as a young person through loans from his father-in-law and was by all accounts uh, very successful as a young up-and-coming market maker in over-the-counter stocks um, and even a pioneer in um, automated trading. So, Back in before the 1980s, everything was paper-based. He was he, well, on top of involving computers at the time to reduce transaction times, reduce costs for everyone. So believe it or not, uh, from humble, humble-ish humble beginnings, he did obtain um, a, a remarkable degree of success for a Hofstra University graduate before the, the Ponzi, of course, came into being.
3: Ah, so- then he partners, probably in the beginning, uh, I would assume, he partners with these two accountants who worked at his father-in-law's firm, Frank Avellino and Michael Bienes. I think I'm saying that right? Yes, um, that's correct. What was the setup and how did it grow?
1: <laughs> right. Well, those accountants became uh, part of the machinery that enabled his fraud because they were a tiny little outfit Uh, in no way equipped to um, properly audit or be the accountants for what became a huge investment fund. Um, And so they became a way of kind of shielding this, the the Ponzi, um, because they weren't able to properly do do accounting for him. But so, yes, he was brought in, his father-in-law started kind of as father-in-laws do, saying that my son is this incredible market wizard. <laughs> you should invest with my, my son-in-law. And so at first, uh, you know, a lot of the initial investors were friends and family of his father-in-law, Saul Alburn. And then from there, word of mouth was, was very much uh, a part of how he, he obtained his clientele because it was a tight-knit community. Um, And so what became, what metastasized into this large Ponzi originally was kind of a small side business in helping his father-in-law's friends and family with their own personal investments.
3: So when did the Ponzi scheme start? I know that that's uh, one of those questions that is very difficult to answer, Uh, but when do they think, around what time? Uh, did it begin?
1: So this is like the million dollar question. Um, There are some who say that his business was always, uh, the investment business was always a Ponzi scheme. So that would have begun in the late 60s, 70s. According to Madoff's own accounts and according to what was accepted for the purposes of sentencing, um, it began in the late 80s. Right during the time of the market recession hit, when it hit, he um, allegedly shorted the strategy in which he had involved his uh, investors' money, intending to pay it back. And then the market never recovered. And so he then um, was never never able to dig himself out of that hole. So late 80s. Late 80s. Okay, so...
3: The SEC then does this internal investigation on his business and finds that, you know, the the two accountants are not licensed. Should, yes. should the SEC have caught onto this scheme by then?
1: Or, you know, how was Madoff able to get away with it? Yes. And so, you know, something that most people don't know, which is that um, the accountants were investigated and by... By accident, therefore, Bernie Madoff was investigated by the SEC in 1992. So that was the first investigation that should have raised red flags, um, but it didn't. And following that, he was investigated uh, between six and eight times by the SEC. Um, Har- wow. Yes, there were multiple investigations. Bernie Madoff himself... Said He defends them a lot or defended them before he died, Uh, defended the SEC a lot, saying they didn't have enough money to conduct proper investigations. They kind of sent their C-team that weren't used to (laughs) that weren't used to dealing with uh, someone of his magnitude of uh, experience and, uh, you know, Gravitas. Yeah, major backhanded compliment
3: on his part.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, of course. Oh, no, he in case you didn't guess, uh, he did not have a small ego. And so it's just his fraud was too complex and brilliant for the gumshoes to have caught on to it completely. Uh, and so he actually said, you know, they they sent people who didn't have the Walls, Wall Street expertise to understand what I was doing. Um, they weren't funded enough. So he defends that that they were such, you know, so grossly incompetent in their investigations. In fact, there was one instance where he thought he was going to get caught. All they had to do, he gave them what's called a DTTC number, a DTCC number. Um, which confirms that trades have happened. And so if the investigators had just confirmed that the trades had happened in the early 2000s, the whole scheme would have collapsed then and there. Wow. So it was such an easy thing for them to have done. He said he was expecting the FBI to come knocking on his door the next day after he gave them the DTCC number, and they never did it. Uh, so that was shocking. Um, in addition, I'm sure you know this guy, Harry Markopoulos, but he was the big whistleblower, the the quant dork, you know that he he had done the the, crunch all the numbers and and sent the SEC a document which says the world's largest hedge fund, hedge fund is a Ponzi scheme, like holding nothing back, and they still just filed it away. Wow, I mean that's a major
3: headline. <laughs> I would have at least noticed.
1: <laughs> Though that the yes, the world's largest hedge fund yeah. is a Ponzi scheme is, is eye-catching.
3: And I'm like an uh, a, uh, I would consider myself like an N or M team. <laughs>
1: Way lower than the C team. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, definitely. But but they were they were definitely the 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 C team. They were very, you know, ill prepared for dealing with the high-quality bullshit that May- Madoff was able to spin because he had the vocabulary, he had the, the kind of reputation on Wall Street of being a market wizard. So he was intimidating.
3: Ah, so th- even the, all the headlines that came out during the 2000s, they, they didn't really hurt his business in any way.
1: You know, it's very interesting. So there were a few headlines that came out. One was for Barron's, one was for Marhedge. Uh, both in the early 2000s, both of which got a lot of attention. And Mm -hmm. um, it raised red flags, interestingly, in some of the uh, large banks. So, for example, there was an internal conversation that was happening in J.P. Morgan about whether or not they should be having some of their products invested in Madoff. They had a, a large amount of money in Madoff products at the time, 200 to 300 million dollars. So, so wow. but, but they didn't get rid of him and yes, he didn't lose significant clientele. So the thought is that for some of the clients, they have may, they may have thought that he was front running or doing something illegal, but they were hoping that it would continue long enough for them to continue to make profits. Um, it's it's really unclear why, if there were these very skeptical articles being written in major publications for the industry, that people wouldn't be like, "Get my money out as soon as possible."
3: Right. They wanted to believe what they wanted to believe. Yeah.
1: Was it willful blindness? Um, you know, for for some, could could be could be. Could be. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so I, I want to talk about uh, Frank. Pascali. Uh, he's the uh, right-hand man to Madoff's business. Um, how did he get involved in the business and how did his role develop throughout the years?
1: It's very interesting that Madoff often chose to have right-hand people who were noticeably less qualified in the sense of education, business experience than he was, and to kind of surround himself by, 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 by these people. And to compensate, to compensate them well, to kind of buy off their their loyalty and their their silence. So in uh, Madoff's interactions with his right hand people, a lot of the fraud took place on an entirely different floor than his regular business. And so these people acted kind of as protectors of of that business, shielding. Uh, made off in a way from the, the questions that would inev- inevitably arise. And so they were eventually found found guilty, found culpable, along with his brother in the scheme that they knew what was going on. Um, unfortunately, Frank DiPasquale, or maybe uh, I never want to say, but he passed away. Um, and so his story, um, as far as finding out more about what what he knew about it and the, the details um, disappeared shortly thereafter. After he had been found guilty, he passed away of cancer, I believe.
3: It seems like the 2008 housing market crash and the the Great Recession was the point of no return for Madoff. How did that unravel?
1: Ah, so yes, it's amazing how even if we take the late 80s as the origin point for the scheme. It was one of the longest lasting Ponzi schemes in history. Not the longest lasting, but one of the longest lasting. Um, and so the fact that it survived uh, recessions was, was remarkable. The fact that it re- survived all these SEC investigations and Harry Markopoulos and MarHedge and Barons, But it couldn't survive the financial crisis because what ended up happening was, of course, Banks stopped lending to each other. Le- uh, people were panicking, withdrawing their money, trying to stuff it under their mattress. So what ended up happening was that the investors normally made off um, honored redemption. So if, if someone wanted to take their money out, he, he had the liquidity to, to do that for them. Um, but with the, the uh, crisis, so many withdrew. He had billions of dollars. In redemptions, he the Ponzi scheme simply collapsed because he he just didn't have the the capital capital on hand to give it out to everyone. So, you know, oftentimes I still get uh, in one in one piece of angry mail. I I received someone said to me, "How can you write you know give voice because I interviewed him, give voice to this guy who caused the financial crisis?" Well, he actually didn't cause it. He was like a victim of the financial crisis himself, because it would his Ponzi would have kept going were it not for the fact that the economy was going, you know, wow. Mm-hmm.
3: So that I mean, that is remarkable. Is there any evidence that um, his family or, or more, more specifically, uh, his sons or his wife knew that he was running this Ponzi scheme before it came crashing down?
1: Ah, interesting. So uh, there, there is no evidence that uh, his sons or Ruth knew about about this beforehand. Um, I think that, that Diana, some of the, the uh, investigations that were really thorough yielded no evidence. And I think that given the number of lawsuits <laughs> and clawbacks And everything that that uh, happened after the fraud unraveled, people were trying to get money by any means necessary to make up for their their losses, understandably, that if they were involved, something would have come out. I think it's entirely believable how many of us know really what our significant others do all day, (laughs) maybe now because of the quarantine and we're seeing each other way too much. But (laughs) But but generally, you know, so she she. Had been married to this very successful person who was successful before the Ponzi scheme. She was used to a high quality of of life with multiple yachts and multiple homes and all of that. So, the point at which the the firm switched from not being a Ponzi scheme to having this Ponzi scheme, uh, you know, side side business, would she have been able to tell? I I really. I really don't think so. As far as his sons, uh, I also don't think that was the case. They were involved in, a, in the legitimate market-making business in which he was uh, involved, Madoff. They worked on a separate floor. I think we can say they sh- maybe they should have been, like, dad, why is there another floor? But-
3: <laughs> <laughs> The classic question. Dad, yeah,
1: you know- but- <laughs> What happens on that floor we don't go to? <laughs> You know, knocking on the door was happening in there, but, but they didn't. Um, Mark Madoff committed suicide on the anniversary of his father's death a year later, after he was being hounded day in and day out about what he knew. And um, Andrew later died of of cancer and blamed his father almost until the last minute that the stress had, had contributed to, um, to his illness. So, no, there is no credible evidence that they knew. That didn't mean, of course, that they didn't have to um, give up a lot of money. Um, that, oh. Yes. As did, by the way, many Madoff victims had to give back a lot of the fictitious earnings that they had gotten um, unwittingly. So even if they didn't know, as many Madoffs did, Madoff victims did not know, because the proceeds were ill gotten gains they had to give them back to other victims so just imagine Mm -hmm. like you had bought something thinking that you had money in the bank turns out that money was the proceeds of a crime so you have to give it back it's it's been uh years and years and years of of lawsuits and fighting over what to do about people who didn't know but nevertheless benefited from the crime
3: what a nightmare for these victims! Um, yeah. How wide okay. was this uh, scope uh, of of the victims? How many were there? Um, and 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 did I, I guess you're, the I kind of know the answer to this, but were they a- able to recover any losses? Probably great.
1: not. Yeah. No. Great question. Um, so the credible f- number of uh, claims for restitution that were filed in the Breeden Fund. Last time I looked around thirty five thousand. So it was a massive global, global fraud. These were not only direct victims. So people who knew that they were giving their money to this investment uh, advisor known as Madoff. It was also people who had their money in pensions who were indirectly affected. Could you imagine like you find out, oh, that money I was putting into a retirement account, that I thought was safe actually was with this guy who turned out to be a complete fraud. No, no, no. So it it really makes you want to take all of your money and just shove it under your bed. So, um, (laughs) and the, so the the total was 65 billion in fictitious profits that were lost at the end of the day, that uh, the amount of principal that was lost was 17.5 billion of that. Made-off victims who lost a million dollars or less now have gotten all of their principal back. All of it, a hundred percent. Wow. Yeah. Uh, of course it took years. And of course that doesn't include the money that they thought they had. And of course the oh. stress, you know, the, the gray hair that yeah. they got, all of that. Um, and then the rest of the, the victims who had over a million dollars, they uh, have 75 cents on the dollar to date. So okay. presumably in a few years, um, which is unusual, by the way, for a Ponzi scheme, yeah. the Madoff victims are unusual in a number of ways, the scale of the fraud, but also the scale of the effort that was made to recover that money. Usually you're SOL with these types of schemes. So they will at least have gotten some uh, compensation, restitution.
3: So has there been any significant change in policy that was made, at you know, in the aftermath of this case? Essentially, could this happen again?
1: Oh, it already has. <laughs> oh, no. It, it, oh, no. It already has. Um, there have been a number of uh, high dollar Ponzi schemes since then. In fact, uh, prosecutions of Ponzi schemes went up after the Madoff case which kind of makes the point that deterrence, like the idea of throwing someone away for 150 years, that that would deter other people from cooking up (laughs) their own scheme, um, that that doesn't hold any water. So there have been quite a few high profile Ponzi schemes since then, it absolutely can happen again. Anytime too, you have a new technology, a new product. So, for instance, um, cryptocurrencies. You can imagine that, in short order, there will be Ponzi schemes that are being cooked up to draw people in, uh, under the promise of steady returns or profits that uh, are unusual, and because where there where there is the idea that you are losing it. You are losing out on an opportunity of a lifetime. Mm. Our psychology, our psychology is always, huh, well, this might be too good to be true, but this might also be way too good to pass up on. What if I'm the sucker sitting out as this skyrockets and I'm losing out on this golden opportunity? So as long as human psychology exists like this, and as long as there are people who, know that that's how we think and can take advantage of it, there will be Ponzi schemes. As far as policies that have changed, um, a few things I would like to point out. First of all, the SEC, which was a convenient uh, scapegoat for a lot of this, they took a lot of heat for for the Madoff, uh, somewhat rightfully so. Um, They issued like a 400-page self-whipping report Red flags, here's what we missed, here's what we missed, here's what we missed. Um, To be fair to the SEC, their budget has not kept pace with the amount of transactions that they're responsible for policing. So even if you change the policy, if there's not the manpower and woman power, and if there's not the resources to to transactions, do. importantly, the SEC, All of these government uh, organizations that police Wall Street, they are super reliant on the private sector because those are the people that see like banks are the people that see money going in, money going out of accounts. So JP Morgan was Bernie Madoff's banker. They were the ones who should have alerted the relevant cops that something was going on. Yes. Guess what? 1998, there were employees at J.P. Morgan saying uh, there are so many red flags with this account. I don't think it's too good to be true. We shouldn't be involved with this guy. Was ignored. No suspicious activity. Yeah. 1998, no suspicious activity report was filed. Um, In the 2000s, J.P. Morgan, the London branch, said, we can't do business with him anymore because we are convinced that um, that this is this is uh, possibly illegal. London wouldn't bank with him, but New York didn't shut his account. So J.P. Morgan ended up uh, in a deferred prosecutorial agreement, um, which which they they had to pay one point seven billion dollars in fines because of Ma- wow. because of Madoff. So what changed was they had to beef up their program of providing red flags for accounts that were so obviously fraudulent, like Madoff. <laughs> <laughs> so so things did change not only in government, but also it scared the heck out of some private sector actors because, I mean, $1.7 for J.P. Morgan is not You know, they wouldn't close their doors over it, but it's a lot of money, and so it forced them to um, invest in more anti money laundering, more due diligence. So they had to step up after the Madoff scheme, too. Okay, so
3: after I have to ask the the hard the hardest question. All right. At the end of the day, if you had to pick one person or thing. Uh, it can be a concept or, a, a, you know, a systemic failure that that is to blame for the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. Who or what would that be?
1: OK, I, there's so, so I think that there is <laughs> there is so much blame to go around that we could spend all day talking about that. Um, I do think that even as a sociologist who is very interested in how systems impact uh, ability to get away with things, differential policing of people according to race, class, et cetera, et cetera, I must say that ultimately, irreducibly, it comes down to the individual. Um, Madoff ultimately could have made the decision to, when he saw things, going to hell, uh, in the late '80s, when he wasn't able to make the profits that he was promising his investors, instead of admitting, "Hey, I'm I'm a market wizard, but I can't do it right now," uh, instead of saying that, admitting that he, that he couldn't constantly generate huge profits, instead of doing that, he chose to short the market and begin the Ponzi scheme. Perhaps unintentionally as 25% of Ponzi schemes are unintentional. But nevertheless, he kept up the lie as it kept metastasizing, as he saw more and more victims being drawn in, um, including Ellie Wiesel, including people with kids to put through college and and all of that. So I think that it would be negligent of me to, to blame it on the systems. <laughs> <laughs> and and not to say, hell, you know, Bernie Madoff was, was ultimately uh, primarily responsible for this. But then if we, we start at the individual level, because ultimately that's where it resides, if it weren't for the individual, there'd be no uh, no other blame to go around. But then from there, uh, Frank pascali the, the the accountants who were involved, um, his brother who went to prison, by the way, um, for his complicity and signing off on it. Um, the the bad faith victims, there were people who actually knew uh, that they were involved mm. in a Ponzi. The bad faith victims who just kept cashing it in, cashing it in, cashing it in, um, had nine hundred percent profits. the The system that would rather, you know, um, turn a blind eye to a big market maker than to look a little bit closer like JP Morgan because they were he was generating huge, Profits for them. Um, the system of capitalism in general that rewards <laughs> that rewards the biggie, the biggie that rewards risk taking and speculation rather than actual work being done that produces real value that creates fictitious profits, etc. So I think from that kernel of the individual, then we keep building and building and building, and we get to the systemic. But uh, all bear some some small or large measure of accountability in the end. Who's to blame? Lots of people.
3: <laughs> Lots of people. And you know what? I, I We couldn't have done it without you, uh, Colleen. Thank you for helping us understand <laughs> this very complicated uh, and yet not so complicated, uh,
1: you know, financial scheme. Yes. No, my pleasure. And I think that it's important that... Maybe, maybe like as a word of advice, that it seems Madoff, when he was speaking uh, to me, tried to also make it seem more complicated than it was. To ask mm. ourselves, you know, because whatever little money, you know, I know people who are broke who are who are doing day trading. Right. But so whatever little money you have, if you don't understand what is being promoted, what is being how your money is being uh invested, to actually say, Hey, wait a minute, explain this to me as if I were a kindergartner. <laughs> and and if you still don't understand, hey, I think the lesson of Madoff is keep your money, keep your money in a savings account. <laughs>
3: Incredible advice. And you know what? That's what we here at The Alarmist do every single week. Explain it to us as if I was a kindergarten kid. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance.
2: With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hello, Rebecca, and hello to the Alarmy. Now,
3: what I mean, first of all, I wish, I know I say this all the time, but I wish Dr. (laughs) Oren was my teacher.
2: Your teacher. I know. (laughs) I was thinking the same thing. She was so, I mean, just how excited she got at some of those questions (laughs) was amazing. I was like, this woman knows a lot about Ponzi schemes. (laughs) And she just said something like in the end, which I kind of
3: wanted to ask her more about, but uh, that only 25, there are 25% of Ponzi
2: schemes that are, that people don't realize they're getting themselves into. Well, fascinating. I think what she means is 25% of Ponzi schemes, the the criminals don't intend to be Ponzi schemes. And it reminded me of this, um, Docu series I've been watching on HBO Max called Generation Hustle. Mm. And each episode centers around a scam, and most of them are Ponzi schemes that start out well-intentioned, and then the person makes a mistake and instead of coming clean to the investors, they decide to lie and cover up. And these are not on the same scale as Bernie Madoff. I mean, they cover WeWork. They also cover this um frat boy, uh, uh, this frat guy who started this basically hedge fund from his frat house and then like got in really deep with all of his friends who had invested like thousands of dollars. Uh, So I highly recommend Generation Hustle to you and also anyone else who's interested in learning more about these Ponzi schemes, because like almost all of them started out pretty sincere. Well, it makes me think then that we should have
3: perhaps put up on the board that moment of truth, because Dr. Eren also mentioned that, that there was this moment where Madoff could have come clean, Had you know, had it been in the eighties when there was that um, financial crisis, perhaps if he had just come clean or said, uh, I, I messed up, you know, instead of like trying to doctor up and, and, and look like he was this financial genius, which clearly he wasn't. And, and and i being a scam a is? con artist is it doesn't make you a genius <laughs> it makes well, you a I liar th-
2: <laughs> yeah and i think that actually really plays into something we did put up on the board which is ego mm-hmm. because it's that moment where it's your ego and your pride or we had toxic pride up on the board it won't allow you to admit that you made a mistake and so you really see that moment with a lot of these schemes as well where the person just can't admit they're too embarrassed, and that plays into oh. pride and ego that that's scary oh. because oh thank
3: you dogs uh, they agree <laughs> they, they they're so scared too it, it's really scary because it makes wow. you realize that there's a moment in your life where you know it's the those uh what's that Gwyneth Paltrow, sliding doors. (laughs) It's that sliding doors moment that inevitably everyone has, I'm assuming.
2: Uh, Yeah, definitely. I mean, if only uh, Madoff had had a podcast like The Alarmist to listen to, where he could have (laughs) seen. But you know what? The thing is, it wouldn't have mattered because people like that think they're the exception to the rule. Mm. Yep. He's not listening
3: to the alarmist because he doesn't, he's not alarmed by anything. Or he would not have. No, he thinks have. he's got
2: it under control. Yeah. That's scary. <laughs> so uh, there are a couple other things that um, Colleen said that I think we might just want to quickly breeze through to get your perspective on. Yeah. Uh, she went hard on the banks and the private sector. And I was kind of feeling like, ooh, maybe we were a little bit tough on the SEC and not hard enough on the private sector, like JP Morgan. Yeah, I I think you're
3: right. Um, I think sometimes what happens with these private banks is, like she said, I don't understand how they work. And sometimes it's really hard to go hard on these things that we don't really fully understand.
2: But I (laughs) trust her. It's probably for the best. (laughs) Well, but also, you know what we have, Rebecca, is like what we said in the episode is that Well, we don't have high expectations for the private sector, so we can't really blame them. But I actually think we need to raise the bar for them Mm. because it's kind of not okay to let them off the hook. No, and and we didn't for the financial
3: crisis of two thousand eight. We didn't, Uh, and perhaps this is another one where we shouldn't have left let them off the hook. And you're right; we should. Corporations should be responsible for their clients. And in a way, like they just, they let their clients down.
2: Totally. And also it's like the, okay, so she rattled off that amazing list at the end there and a couple of them we had missed. So um, another one was, I think we could have put FOMO up on the board because she (laughs) talked about fear of losing out on a great opportunity. Oh yeah, FOMO, come on, missed opportunity for us. (laughs) And I get that. Um, She also said- Um, that let's see. Oh, the accountants, his brother, the bad faith victims, which were the investors who knew it was a Ponzi scheme, but didn't care. um, Banks, capitalism, and capitalism that rewards risk taking. So we didn't actually you talk about the brother at the end, but we didn't actually put the brother up on the board. We didn't. You're right. We did put those accountants up. Yeah. Uh,
3: and we, or we discussed them and we, we talked about Pascali, uh his, uh, his right hand man. But, yeah. You're, but you're right. There were a
2: lot of bad faith victims. There were. Um, so I don't know, like, does this make you want to rethink the verdict? Because just to remind everyone, we did send Birdie Madoff to jail and uh colleen said she believes irreducibly it comes down to yeah <laughs> wow this is I like the that. first time ever that we all agree to just send the person who did the
3: crime to the I alarmist know. jail <laughs> but maybe we, but we slapped the sec yeah i mean they did take the fall as they should have i guess when, when it all went down but perhaps we at,
2: at the alarmist should have been slapping the banks yeah, she brought up a good point that the SEC is like pretty underfunded. But then it made me suspicious when she said that Madoff was defending them. Right. To so you, yeah. I mean, again, it, uh, you know what? Should we just keep it as is? I think we. I, I think we could keep it as is because. Well, we've gotten the banks before. We're constantly going after capitalism. We know that they're, you know, they're bad. Yeah. In some for the most part, in some yeah. ways.
3: In, in Except scenarios. for the ones that
2: the bank that has my money in it. I would like yeah to just hold my little, my crumbs. Yeah, the ones that have our crumbs, they're okay. But, but we've gone after them in the past. So it's not like we've been totally ignorant to, to their misdeeds. Right. And,
3: again, the SEC, like, how many red flags does it take for you to open an investigation and just, like, look into it a little further? I mean, this is, we're talking, I know that they had a lot on their plate, but what could have been more important at the time than, like, this guy who's uh, committing fraud, uh, you know, billion, like, fraud with billions and billions of dollars. What what could have been more important at the time? I don't know. Maybe someone has the answer out there. <laughs> um, okay, so let's keep it as is. Uh, but I'm glad we discussed all of these other uh, things that we should have put up on the board. Now, Amanda, is there any housekeeping stuff that we should do
2: before we uh, end this episode? Yes, yeah, thank you, Rebecca. So... <laughs> Uh, We've been putting our call out to get 100 new reviews by our 100th episode, which is a few weeks away. And this has been stalled. We were making Mm. great headway. We were, you know, cashing in reviews left and right. And then something happened with Apple Podcasts, where there is a glitch in their system that has shut down all reviews on certain podcasts. And unfortunately, the alarmist is one of those podcasts. Who is to blame over at Apple Podcasts? (laughs) Trust me, I have been tweeting at them. We've been emailing. There's no way to get a hold. Of course, you can't get a hold of a, a person for the customer service. You have to just submit an email form. It's been an ongoing saga. It's been down for a week. So yeah, so we're pausing. We're hitting pause on that. But I have a feeling, hopefully I'm crossing my fingers that the issue is resolved within a week. And in the meantime, maybe consider listening on a different platform and leaving us a review there. That would be great. That could be good. And I, I bet you by the
3: time that hopefully by the time this airs on Thursday, it will have been,
2: you know, settled.
3: But I if, hope so. So I hope so. Yeah.
2: Too. Um <laughs> I really do. And I you know, honestly, for their sake, Because the wrath of the alarmist, you do not want that coming after you. No. (laughs) We've had some people tweeting
3: at us uh, and and, and just contacting us and telling us about this situation. So I hear you. We're trying to fix it. Um, But in the meantime,
2: do, as Amanda said, perhaps review uh, elsewhere so yeah or maybe you could just spend some more time like doing a few different drafts of your review I'm just expecting that by the time (laughs) it fixes itself everyone's reviews are going to be like essays (laughs) really thoughtful essays so just keep working on that send it in an email to yourself have a friend proofread it and then the minute we're back up baby we'll let you know and you can post it (laughs) that's that's a good good advice really yeah save it on your notes section On your phone, perfect. (laughs)
3: Um, Okay, well, I'm glad to hear that hopefully we'll get all of this settled. Um, And if not, we're going to have to get the, perhaps we'll have to get the web crawlers, uh, girls involved. Hopefully this isn't some kind of conspiracy against (sighs) the alarmists that, you know... Well, that would be well, bad. W-
2: web crawlers is is experiencing the same thing and they are um they're on it. So I have <laughs> faith that they'll they'll get through somehow. <laughs> um but in the
3: meantime we're still here. We're uh we're still recording episodes and tune in next week because we are going to be discussing who's to blame for the tragic events that happened in New Jersey's action park. You're not going to want to miss.